I'll start us off by reading the passage here. This is Romans 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, there will be tribulation and distress, for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This text is concerned with judgment, and there's two judgments that this text is discussing the holy, righteous judgment of God and the hypocritical judgment of man. Specifically, the judgment that the Jews were so common, the Jews so commonly practiced. But before we can fully unpack all of that, Romans, we have to understand that Romans is an argument that each point it makes in every section is building off of previous points that are made and leading to further um, arguments. So we have to understand the background of this text to properly understand the text. In the last sections, Paul is speaking primarily for the sake of the Gentiles. His goal is to establish in them a foundational understanding of where they stand before God. He wants to make sure that the Gentiles in the congregation understand that before a holy and righteous God, they deserve condemnation. That even though they never received the laws or the prophets that Israel received, they are still accountable for their actions. Mm -hmm. And the accounting for their actions is that they have earned wrath. Mm It's critical that the people in the congregation understand where they stand before God. It's critical that they understand that God has declared judgment against them and that that judgment is righteous and good. Without a proper understanding of God's judgment against you, you cannot understand your need for a Savior. And so that's what Paul's building to. He starts in Romans 1 with the Gentiles. He presents to them where they stand before God. And he argues that that place is a place of judgment and wrath. Then he'll transition in Romans 2 and the beginning of Romans 3 to discuss the wrath that is awaiting for the Jews. And this is all building up to his presentation of salvation in Christ. The preaching of judgment is very important for believers and non-believers alike. This letter is a letter to believers. He starts this letter with judgment because it's so important to understanding the value of Christ. 
without the preaching, the teaching, and the conversation about judgment, we can't understand why Christ is so precious. We can't understand what is special about his sacrifice. While in the world, we might be told to avoid the fire and brimstone preaching. You know, people may, might scoff at that and shame that. And there is truth that we can go too far, that we can be inaccurate and unbiblical in our focus on preaching judgment. But we can also go too far the other way. I was listening to, uh, I, was just, I was talking about, uh, and I mentioned him last week, the way Bill Maher was sort of celebrating the death of a well-known conservative slash libertarian. And so I showed that to somebody else at work. And that person at work said something like, boy, I wish I could be there to watch him suffer at the end. And I said to himself, I think you just missed the whole point of what I was trying to show you. I said, in fact, there'll be someone that's less of a jerk than you who might get to watch your suffering. And then there'll be, maybe there'll be someone that's less of a jerk than him. So where do you want it to stop? Hmm. Or where do you want it to begin? I mean, you don't get the right to watch someone. What about, you know, you get to look out for you, man. This yeah. suffering awaiting you, you unholy thing. We'll, we'll really see in this passage how um, the sinful heart loves to use the condemnation of others mm. to puff itself up and to mm-hmm. justify its own sin. Mm-hmm. It seems like the, uh, <clears throat> the deception of the, and I would call it the deception of the devil, is that um, this is all optional. And that, that, that people don't really realize their, their position before God without mm-hmm. outside of Christ. I mean, it's like, eh, it's a big, no big deal. You, you know, we go to the beach, we have a good time. What, what's the big deal? But the, the fact is that, as you're saying, that we are, uh, mankind is, is under the wrath of God. You don't even know it. You don't even have yeah. any realization of that. Just the opposite of what these two guys said. Mm-hmm. And what, you, you, what Romans is teaching, I've been interested for a lot of years on uh, these uh, NDEs, they call them, near-death experiences. Mm. Yeah. A lot of the books that have been written on this subject, people's claims of... You know what happens the moment after you die, mm-hmm. or they're supposedly clinically dead for 45 minutes or 30 seconds or whatever, and they they have these uh, out of body experiences. Anyway, one of the ladies had concluded. I, I think she was like a sort of like a student or a teacher among there's a society of NDE people, <laughs> and says, you know, the good news is that there's no judgment for what we do in this world that God is nothing but love and, and what you do in this world you get punished for but you don't in the next it was horrible Oprah Winfrey it was worse even I mean it was just, just mm-hmm. right in the well, face of God that's yeah. and, and that's not a God worthy of worship you know because he's not just So, in the previous sections, Paul presents the state of the Gentiles. And he's going to transition um, in chapters 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 to presenting the case for the condemnation of the Jews. Now, the main reason that this is written is that a understanding of the gospel is important and he wants to communicate that and encourage that in the church um, but there's also more wisdom that the script that the spirit has put in Paul um, in writing this to the church where in the church you had the situation where Jews and Gentiles were in the church the Jews were exiled from Rome and then were re-entering you end up with two cultures that grow independently of each other and are now put into a situation where they are to live corporately as one body striving together for one thing. Um, And when you put two um, distinct cultures together in such a situation, it's a hotbed for dissension and strife. But Paul and the Holy Spirit see how the gospel is the answer for those divisions. We're in Romans 2, everybody, in case you just came in. Um, 
<coughs> with a proper understanding of where we stand before God, before salvation in Christ, and after, that answers division and dissent that would form in the body. Who can look down on a brother as if they're better than them when they remember that their salvation has nothing to do with themselves? Mm. That not a single work in their life was good enough to make them stand right before God. The gospel brings unity in the church. And it makes sense because the gospel is the story of Christ Mm -hmm. and Christ is the head of the church. So Paul's going to start this argument against the Gentiles with an exposition of the hypocritical judgments that the Jews so commonly made. And he starts in verse 1 with, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. When we see words like therefore, we should pause and pay attention. These words indicate that the argument he's about to make connects to the points he previously made and that you cannot understand it properly without understanding what came before. Um, So when we see these, these are excellent tools for getting the context of the passage. The therefore that he's talking about here um, leads into his declaring that they have no excuse and that connects back to in the previous section where he proclaims to the Gentiles that they have no excuse. And if the Gentiles have no excuse because of the light of God that's revealed in creation, how much more so do the Jews have no excuse for their sin Mm -hmm. if they have the light of Scripture and the light of the prophets? There's a reason why Paul starts his argument against the Jews with condemning their self-righteous judgments. He starts with it because he knows that up to this point, the teaching that he's given on the condemnation of the Gentiles sounds very much like the standard Jewish teaching of the day. And that he needs to wake them up that this is not the Jewish teaching that they grew up with. This is not the lessons that were hammered into them and that they felt comfortable with in their own heart. This is the lesson in scripture that they missed over and over again. That it's not just the Gentiles who deserve wrath, but it is they they themselves because they fall short of that same standard. Intelligently, Paul wields the agreement that they would have with what he previously stated against their own sinful heart. And we can, we can see an excellent example of this Jewish mentality in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable, and I'm going to read it here. He also told this parable, this is Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And as a, a quick note there, Christ is the one who humbled himself and was exalted. <clears throat> this is an excellent presentation of where the self-righteous judgments of the Jews went. They ignored their own sin and felt justified in doing so because they could point out people that appeared more sinful than them. People who, to them, seemed to have lost the favor of God and that that was obviously only because of their sinfulness and that they themselves must not be sinful for they have the favor of God. But Paul turns their own judgments against them. He shows how in passing judgment on another they condemn themselves because the standard they set they fall short of. Because you, the judge, practice the same things. He, in the next verse, he tells them to agree with him because he knows that they do. He says, we know. He's no longer speaking I or, or from himself to the congregation. He's speaking with the congregation that we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. He has made them agree with themselves against themselves. That is the foolishness of sin that our own defenses for ourselves are the same things that condemn us. But Paul is aware here that they might feel that the laws and the prophets and the favor of God, the returns from exile, the conquering of other nations, are signs of their righteousness. He's aware that in their heart they're very tempted to take these things as a justification of themselves. So he prepares to answer that in verses 3 and 4. He says, Do you suppose, O man, you who, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? They are not exempt. And though they would like to distort the gifts that God has given them into a reason to feeling like they don't have to account for their sin, that is not the case. This is the truth that's apparent in Scripture that they have fallen short and that they deserve wrath. But they take this truth and they ignore it. They miss this truth in Scripture and they look at the law of God and they look at the favor they've received and they feel in themselves that they must not deserve judgment because God has dealt with them so kindly. Isn't it interesting that we see here? I love this text. Um, so who cares what I love? But <laughs> God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. His wrath doesn't lead to repentance. His threats of wrath don't lead to repentance. It is His kindness that leads to repentance. I just man, that just feeds me. Can you define that a little more, uh, anybody? Uh, kindness. How how does that? result in someone's repentance what kind of kindness is referring to it you seem to imply that it was patience if I'm not mistaken Justin from something you just said um, that God was kind toward them in the past is that what you were thinking 
Yeah, so it's it's all sorts of things. So when you look at kindness, you get things like the law and the prophets. Mm -hmm. You get the return from exile. You get the conquering of other nations. Mm -hmm. um, things like that are the kindness. The forbearance and the patience is God not dealing with them based on their sinfulness. Um, the And... Um, not blotting out the nation when it falls into iniquity. I don't know, maybe this applies, maybe it doesn't, but just this idea of like kindness and wrath, if you look at it like in the context of disciplining a child, like kindness and wrath in a vacuum kind of can look the same, right? Because mm -hmm. it can look like physical discipline, but it's the heart of the thing, right? So like, hey man, I spank my kids, right? You can spank your kids out of wrath, you can spank your kids out of kindness, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so... Sometimes it's the motive behind mm. behind the act, so to speak, right? And mm. so in the heart of this discipline, yeah, man, you, you, it's going to hurt, but it's because I'm being kind to you and I'm saving you from future problems, you know? But mm. at the beginning, if you have context, you don't understand what's happening. It just looks the same. Yeah. Is there another adjective for the word kindness? Does anybody have another word in their translation? King James says goodness. Anybody else? NIV or everybody's got either kindness or okay. I, I like the, the fact that God is the epitome of kindness. He is the epitome of righteousness. The epitome of goodness, and he's also the epitome of compassion. And he impatience and forbearance. Yeah, and he's showing this. Uh, and for those who repent, for those who love him. Mm. Yeah. Harrison? <coughs> I, I, I think the best illustration that I can think of of God's kindness, uh, as opposed to his wrathliness for repentance, is in the parable of the prodigal son, where the, the young man was, of course, he was a glutton and a drunkard and a fornicator and did all these things. And yet, when he comes to his senses, he returns home to his father. And under Old Testament law, he was worthy to be stoned. Rather, the father runs to him and embraces him. And that Jesus shows us the heart of the father. I think it's that that causes us to really come to our senses. And like at the end of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. When the son exalts himself, mm. he goes out and he's humbled. Mm -hmm. And when he comes back and he humbles himself before his father, you know, he says, give me, you know, just the, the lowest position of a hired worker in the field. The father exalts him, just as it says in the end of uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Um, we have to continue moving. Um, there's a couple wonderful lessons to be learned from this statement that God's pa kindness, forbearance, and patience lead to repentance. Mm -hmm. We can see in this passage how all of these things demonstrated in the Old Testament are types of Christ. That the patience, the kindness, the forbearance that lead to repentance are shadows of God's greatest act of kindness, of patience and forbearance meant to lead to rep mm -hmm. repentance and that's the life of Christ. Christ sacrifices himself for us. He came down not in condemnation which demonstrates the forbearance and the patience of God but in kindness to sacrifice as a servant and that greatest act the, that greatest expression of these traits is meant to lead us to repentance um, and the other thing we can learn from this section is by comparing it with the state of the Gentiles who hearts were darkened by God darkened their hearts in response to their sinfulness and then you look at the Jews God gave them love and patience and kindness to turn them from their sinfulness in response to it that whatever way God deals with people 
they do not turn from their sinfulness on their own if, if God punishes them more to show them how bad their sinfulness is they continue in it and if God deals with them kindly and patiently and lovingly they do not turn from their sinfulness the, the unregenerate heart does not respond in either way and no one in the world can honestly say that if God dealt with them differently that they would believe with Amen. in him and this is an excellent Isaiah example of that says, let favor be showed to the wicked yet will he not learn righteousness mm-hmm. so God sometimes shows favor and gives benefits and providential goodness to man but man still does not turn to the Lord mm-hmm. yeah. you know if anyone would say you know I'd believe in God if my life was easier or better um, you know, for one, they're already receiving far more richly than they deserve, mm-hmm. and for two, we get the example here that hundreds of years of grace and <coughs> kindness did nothing to save the hearts of the Je- the Jews. And Paul hammers home at the end of this statement, moving into verse five but because your hard and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed that hard and impenitent heart he's, he's equating it to the same state of the Jewish heart uh, the Gentile heart that it is wretched and it's fallen and that it does not hold pleasing things to God within it and, and this is a, a culture shock for, for a group of people who are used to being self-righteous used to counting themselves as worthy of deserving God's favor and of separate and better than the Gentile nations when he presents your heart is as bad as the Gentiles and you just like the Gentiles are storing up wrath for yourself but after Paul goes over the hypocritical judgment of the Jews he wants to compare that insufficient and inconsistent judgment with God's righteous judgment and so he presents in chapter in verses 6 through 11 God's righteous judgment he shows how God's judgment is glorious comparatively to the Jews their judgment is inconsistent it's biased it's hypocritical and any proper judgment is based on on works no judge condemns people based on their personality no good judge any good judge punishes people based on the actions that they've committed and God's judgment is just like that it's consistent it's reliable it's according to works as it says in verse 6 he will render to each one according to works to those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality he will give eternal life but for those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness there will be wrath and fury there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first and also the Greek for God shows no partiality God's judgments are just because they are based off of works they reward everyone for their works for every human being who does evil the Jew first and also the Greek and this is also a demonstration of how serious the judgment of God is Mm -hmm. this is not something to be taken lightly there will be tribulation and distress wrath and fury this is not a light matter to be considered where you stand before the judgment of God
God is a consistent judge. He renders to each person the same way based on their works. He is not impartial. To the one who murders, he punishes just as the other one who murders. But it's also important to understand context. And if we do not look at context in passages like this, we will easily teach something that the passage is not teaching. Mm-hmm. At best, we could teach this passage as a true statement that is not what this passage is getting at. We could say that faith needs to be accompanied by works, which is a very true statement, a very good statement. Mm -hmm. But that is not what this passage is talking about, Mm -hmm. because that conversation has no place in an argument about condemnation uh, against the Jews. Mm -hmm. And so when we understand what argument he's making here, we can interpret, interpret this passage correctly. And even if we teach something true from this passage, that this passage isn't saying, well, it's good that what we're saying is true and consistent with other things in the Bible, it will allow us to miss the truths that are here. And we do not want to miss the truths that are in Scripture. The point he is making here is that the just law of God is this that those who do good will receive eternal life in God's favor, and that those who do evil will receive tribulation and distress and wrath and fury. It's important to understand salvation that you understand this law, this righteous rule of God, because the gospel is seated in the exchange of these realities, where God is proclaiming to render to those who do good eternal life and those who do bad tribulation and distress where instead in the gospel he renders to all who have done bad the opportunity for eternal life in Christ and he renders to the one who did good wrath and fury tribulation and distress This law is important to understand, to understand how gracious the gospel is. Can you say something about that expression, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile? And it's the second time already Paul has mentioned it. He mentioned it in the first first chapter, verse 16, for uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. To the Jew first, and to the Gentile and then here again it's to the Jew first and to the Gentile is that something passe and now it's it's no longer a sequence of preference or or ranking uh, numerically one first and another the second um, I couldn't really speak to um, it passing away um, but he's He's presenting here that while the Jews um, hold a special regard, that regard is not um, so great that it ignores the works of their life. That he responds to the works of both the Jews and the Gentiles in response to the actions that they commit. I think also in addition to what you just said uh, in answering Gary's question I think that when we take a look at uh, the Jews as being uh, the nation of Israel being the chosen of God and then to the Greeks who did follow or to the Gentiles who also were reached out to okay, then it is uh, and it continues on to the believers today but the Gentiles were not the chosen nation, but they are the chosen people, which are believers. Does that sound right to you? 
Okay, can I speculate a little bit? Yes, Brother Nelson. Um, I've, I've been, I haven't finished the study, but I've been studying, because in the next few verses coming up past what Justin's doing, <coughs> around verse 20 or so, 18 or 20 of chapter 2, this, this study fascinates me because Paul starts talking to the Jews saying, oh, well, what makes you a Jew? Because you're circumcised? That, that doesn't make you no more of a Jew than these Gentiles that haven't been circumcised. They, they're still, you know, believe in Christ and have been saved through the same blood that you have. So these Gentiles that are saved are going to be the ones judging you, O oh Jew, who isn't saved and who's depending on, you know, your, your Jewish heritage or whatever that you think makes you special. And so Paul's kind of saying, you, you think this, you're a Jew just because you've been born into it, but that's not what makes a Jew. And, you know, in Galatians, Paul uses that line at the end, you know, to the Israel of God. And it talks about, in Colossians, the circumcision of the heart. And also in Romans 2, he talks about the circumcision of the heart. And so it's fascinating to, what is a Jew then? You know, is a Jew, if the Israel of God are, you know, believers, then we as believers, even though Gentiles, even Paul mentions in Romans 9, being grafted in, you know, the Jews have been pulled out and we've been grafted into that Jewish heritage. So what, what is a Jew then? Not all Israel is of Israel. <coughs> right. Yeah. You with me? Right. I think that um, when you start getting into this in Scripture, you can see how the Jewish nation, the Israelites, mm-hmm. are a shadow of the the true nation of God, the, the church of believers. Um, mm. and how in, in some passages um, it will be talked about as Jew as in like the 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 shadow the, mm. the Jewish nation and then you get into verses like Jonathan was talking about mm. where it shows the true heart of what Jewishness is meant to point to mm. um, uh, you've been working in Pepsi for 10 years and you walk into Pepsi with a Coca-Cola product, you should be immediately fired. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a new hire, okay? If you're a new hire, you know, common sense ought to tell you not to walk into your new job at Pepsi with a Coke product, right? But there might be a little bit of grace there. So that law about not bringing in a Coke product to Pepsi is there first and foremost for the Pepsi employee that's been there for a long time. Because they know. Yeah. For the sort of new person, they have a sense of general revelation, right? Mm-hmm. They ought to know, knucklehead, you don't, you don't come in with that. Right? Yeah. That's what I see in this. <laughs> I hate to bring it down to that retail gut level, but, but it helps me. But you're saying that both positions... <coughs> rightly shouldn't act That's in right. that way but there is a sense where the position that has been saturated in that environment exactly for right. a longer time Perfectly said. you know Very deserves well said. that response yep saturated in that I like that yeah the words of Patrick are finished <laughs> <laughs> this this law of God that Paul presents here is a depressing truth mm. if we meditate on this it could, should cause sorrow to well up in our hearts mm. <clears throat> because the reality is there is no one here there is no one in the congregation that's being written to there is no one out there in the world that fits the description of Romans chapter 2 verse 7 to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality he will give eternal life none of us none of the Jews in that congregation none of the Gentiles in that congregation are patient in well-doing seeking for glory and honor and immortality so that gift should not be rightly applied to any of us but on the other hand this is the depressing truth because the description in verse 8 describes all of us. It describes the Jews in the congregation. It describes the Gentiles in the congregation. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, 
there will be wrath and fury. That describes the state of all of us before Christ. And that's rightly a depressing reality. But the glory is that there is a person who fulfills Romans 7. The life and then he chooses to exchange that for the punishment garnered by the law in Romans 8. And by meditating on the depressing reality before that exchange, we can see how special the reality is afterwards. And it's important to understand that this section, this law, could be all that there is. This could be where the story of the Bible ends. That God will punish those who do evil and reward those who do good. That could be where the story ends. And no one could question God for being unrighteous or unjust for doing that. Who can question a judge who rightly punishes criminals and sends them to jail? Who could question his judgments and claim he's being unfair? But the glorious thing is that this doesn't end here. That this passage goes on and will eventually get to the revelation of God's salvation. That the judgment does not stand when Christ takes it for us. Paul will continue after this passage to present the condemnation for the Jews. He will demonstrate in various different ways how everything that they think that every truth that they take to justify themselves is a perversion of the truth that God meant and he presents all of this judgment to the Jews and the Gentiles in a loving way because he longs to see them understand why Christ is precious Mm -hmm. and we should learn from this example that we should present judgment we should discuss judgment and we should keep in mind where it leads it leads to the glory of Christ and it's necessary for every believer to understand and focus on these things and it's necessary for unbelievers to realize where they're coming from so that they can understand why they need a savior as a few points of application be wary of teaching that is always pleasant and easy the ge- <laughs> hopefully my teaching wasn't entirely pleasant and easy <laughs> um, the the Jews were led astray by the desire in their heart to find teaching that sat well with them that allowed them to ignore their sin and rest comfortable and easy at night and that pursuit of teaching that is always pleasant always comforting led them to ignore the same God that they claim to be worshipping the God that gives them life every moment and sustains them be wary of teaching that is always pleasant and easy another point of application is that we should understand how the Bible talks about judgment how the Bible wields judgment as a tool for God's glory Mm -hmm not for the glory of man as our hearts would tempt us to do Mm -hmm. not 
as a way of justifying ourselves but of declaring the perfect holiness of God and of leading to a proper understanding of the riches of his love in salvation we should judge like the Bible judges Mm -hmm. with love leading to the salvation of the gospel we should properly respond to God's kindness patience and forbearance those actions in our life are meant to lead us to repentance the gospel in the kindness in the forbearance and patience expressed in it should encourage us in our hearts to repent from our sin and turn to God and follow him more and more every day we should meditate on these things because they lead to repentance they lead to a greater love for God be sure to examine yourself because your sin pushes you to ignore it it will naturally avoid the hard truths it is like a stream flowing down a mountain it avoids the hard path and goes to the easy one it does not take any effort to continue ignoring sin you must examine yourself because it takes every effort to face the truth of what lies in your heart to uncover those realities that is what the Jews fell prey to they ignored the examination of themselves they sought to judge other people yet never judge themselves and we should know these things and meditate on these things that God's law is just and very serious it condemns you it condemns me and it condemns the world and that we are only saved by Christ that we cannot fulfill the law by ourselves by our own works and we should keep this mind when, in mind when we strive to fight sin because it is clear that none of us can fight sin well enough to fulfill the law mm-hmm. so we should not fight sin as if we can mm-hmm. as if through some force of personality of motivation can allow me to overcome my depraved state we should fight sin as a response to the riches of God's love because God's love saves us not our ability to muster motivation and a desire to be better meditate on these things because they are good and they lead to an understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for us does anyone have any questions? when you're talking about the kindness of God and the wrath of God for people who know Christ who have been born again it's easier for us to repent and come to God because we know that he has kindness but even sometimes when we sin we expect wrath you know we don't expect the father to come out and run and hug us we're expecting wrath so how much harder would it be for people who don't know God because they're always expecting punishment and wrath and judgment for them to turn even though God shows them kindness that they won't turn and come to him At, at the end of the day the only thing that allows us to properly respond to God's kindness is the spirit revealing to our hearts the greatest um, exercise of kindness forbearance and patience that God has and that greatest exercise is is Christ's sacrifice on the cross Um, we would not have the ability to respond to um, any of these things that God reveals in our life if it wasn't for the spirit revealing this first thing Um, so whether God 
whether a unsafe person is looking at the judgment that God has for them or the kindness that he has um, you know just in general living neither of those is sufficient to save a person it is the understanding of the greatest expression of those that the spirit reveals that saves us excellent truth that our our heart is a successful business of earning wrath (laughs) (laughs) any other thoughts or questions Uh, brother Pat can you close um, I just uh, have to talk to you up sir but um, I was very blessed today by this study thank you very much very well prepared and good delivery I thank God that it went well the only one to thank, right? Would you close us in prayer, Father? Father, we absolutely thank you this morning for your goodness and your kindness. Mm. And uh, we, we, we just have nothing to bring. And we have everything to cling <laughs> to. <coughs> and Christ, and help us to see, even when as our sister Eva was talking about we feel that sense of deserved wrath that mm-hmm. in itself is intended to help us celebrate your mercy and goodness mm-hmm. to celebrate you so um, thank you for the teaching this morning thank you for the constant waterfall of love that washes mm-hmm. over your people by your spirit and just as our brother Justin articulated just revealed by your spirit to our hearts just how great your love is um, and we ask for that continually certainly if we're filled with your spirit then we're filled also with the sense of your great love for us and we know that that has a transformative impact on our souls and so we just pray for that continued impact and bless us now as we go upstairs also to hear from the word bless the preacher and the music and all the ministry of the word and fellowship hmm. so that Christ be exalted for your glory through your spirit Amen and be encouraged to study this